It is really cool to be here looking at this. This is this was once familiar to me. Um, we've been in a cold gymnasium now for about two months. Um, it's actually not really that cold. Uh, the the gospel like kind of creates a fire, <laughs> but but it, uh, it, it's been completely different. I want you to know that your prayers absolutely matter. I want you to know that the extension of this congregation. Like God is already using it in mighty ways. We're, we're seeing, uh, new faces come every week, not from churches down the road, uh, but, but people that previously were not going to church, uh, are showing up. We have a group of people, uh, that are coming from, uh, uh, 12 step programs even that heard that this is a church. They heard from somebody, I don't know who, <laughs> that this is a church that can handle people like them. And so, like, they've been coming and, like, bringing friends every single week. Um, and, and these people are sitting in there, and they are glued. They are completely immersed in the gospel message and the goodness of Jesus and everything that he's done. So, like, keep praying for Lapine. Everything that's going on down there is really cool. We're a little, we're a little heavier than we thought we would be. We run, we average about 70, 75 people a week, which is weird because we haven't really advertised. And then we, we feed everybody afterward. We have a meal. It's getting a little more difficult to do the meals afterwards because it's free. Uh, but we got women that are just stepping up and, uh, they're, they're bringing soup and they're, they're bringing dishes every single week. No one has to tell them to. And so like the food has increased as the people have increased. Sounds biblical. And, um, and, um, there's this, uh, Pat, Mc- do you guys know Pat McCarter? I gotta tell you this, this doesn't even matter, but it kinda does. Like she, uh, she stays in the kitchen, she's the head of the meal, right? And so I know when my sermon's about up, because you start smelling this garlic bread coming out of the, <laughs> out of the kitchen. I'm serious. And it is like amazing. Like the butter drips, like makes its way all the way to the bottom and then like puddles onto the plate. And so like we've become known for this really good garlic bread and people are so anyway, we got people down there that are dedicated, that are committed, that understand like, um, what it means um, to serve um, with joy. That, that you and I, we're a part of the best thing that this world has ever seen. And it's so weird to me that sometimes we don't act like it. And, um, and right now, like, there's this spirit down there among that core group and these new people that know they're a part of something that's humongous. That's, and I don't mean like, like we're going to be a mega church. I mean, like God big. They know that the gospel is worth it. And, um, and I want to encourage you guys here in Three Rivers to keep that mind about you and to keep that heart about you and that spirit about you. Because when we went down there, we took about 20 people from here that live in that community for part of that, that core group. That means that we emptied about 20 seats here for you to fill with, I'm serious, with your neighbors and with your family members and with your coworkers. There's room for you guys to go out and be the hands and feet and to share the gospel. So please, please remember why we exist. It's because of the gospel. We're going to remember that today. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, beginning of the New Testament. All right, you ready? It's going to be a marathon. All right, go 16 verses. And you're all going to wonder why the heck he showed up today. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. 
and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. We good? After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Yeah, you can applaud for that. That was hardcore. I'm an uneducated uh, high school dropout. So, What I wanted to do today, what I thought we would do, is that we would take every name on this list and thoroughly go through their lives. I don't know why you're laughing. It's what we're doing. We'll be done about next Christmas. So, yeah. Actually, I just wanted to give you a text that you never, ever would read through on your own. So, Merry Christmas. There are actually three points, I believe, of significance in this list of crazy names. I think there's, there's three things that are of extreme importance for this time of the year. Actually, the gospel's in this list. Point of significance number one, God is a promise keeper. Do you see that there? God is a promise keeper. When I was an early Christian in the 90s, there was this thing called promise keepers. You guys remember promise keepers? And I remember going to two of those things because they were like all the rage, you know. And, and, and to, be, to be fair and honest, like God spoke to me through some of those things. I think I went to two of them and then I used to like listen to them all the time as I would drive around. Like on the, the tapes and the recordings of like the main speakers and all that stuff. I went to one in 1995 at Odson Stadium, packed house, packed stadium uh, in Eugene. And then I went to one, I believe, in 97 in Fresno. Pack Stadium. I remember getting so pumped up. I remember getting so excited and so motivated about who God wanted me to be. And when I left those places, I was ready to put on a cape and conquer the world. When I walked out of those places, I was a different man for about a week. 
because I found out that no matter what the promises were that I made, I was unable to keep them. I knew when I walked away that I was going to be the husband that my wife deserved and that God wanted me to be to her. I was going to be the dad that my kids deserved, a godly man. In my vocation, I was going to be the employer and the businessman that God wanted me to be. And I meant it. Every time I walked out of those places and went home, I meant it with everything I had. And I broke promises every time. And I would venture to say that 100% of the guys that ever went to those things did the same thing. And the reason is because there's only one promise keeper that exists. And his name is Jesus. There's only one promise keeper. This is really what Christmas is to me. Um, when I think of Christmas, obviously, I think of a lot of things like, like you guys do for sure. But, but one of the phrases that comes to mind over and over again, over the top of everything else, is promise fulfilled. Promise fulfilled. What we have here in these verses is a long generational saga. We have this long journey through the length and depth and breadth of uh, what we consider the Old Testament uh, history, where you've at some point in the midst of this saga have got to be thinking, does any of this mean anything? Like, is God really doing anything? I mean, consider Abraham. This is where Matthew begins, Right? Abraham was given this promise by God of a Redeemer. He was told that through him, the entire world would be blessed. That sounds good. When? Like, that's my question. Like, when is this going to go down? Right? Tomorrow, next week, ten years from now? Like, when? It, it, it's pretty easy for you and I today to celebrate Christmas by looking back on the incarnation of Christ, by looking back on the arrival of the Redeemer, back on the fulfillment of the promise, right? History's a little kindest, kinder to us on this side. These guys are hoping and anticipating and hoping and anticipating and hoping and anticipating and giving birth to kids and they're dying and they're hoping and anticipating and waiting as generation after generation after generation goes by. We know from verse 17, which we did not read, that 42, 42 generations passed between the promise given by God to Abraham and the arrival of it. Do you know how much waiting that is? 1,260 years. That's a lot of years. You know? I have trouble waiting for my coffee to finish when I push the button on the Keurig. You know what I'm saying? 30 seconds tops. And it's a struggle sometimes. Imagine how many times a father sat down with his son and a mother sat down with her daughter and told them the story of God's promised one to come. There's got to be some points in those 42 generations where there were some doubts. 42 generations is a long time. I mean, heck, it took a long time just to read these 16 verses. We might ask, what in the world was God doing all those years? 
What was he doing? Answer. Working all things together for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. That's what he was doing that whole time. Romans 8.28, I love this verse, you love this verse, and rightly so. This is a good verse. This is one to put on your refrigerator. Probably is on your refrigerator, right? But notice what's missing from this verse that we love so much. Timing. Time. There's no mention of time. There's no mention of how fast or how slow it's going to take God to work these things out. There's no talk at all in Romans 8.28 of immediacy. And so it requires something from us. And I need to remember this daily. You need to remember this daily. That God is doing something, and we have no idea when it's going to go down. You guys know that I have a son that I agonize over right now that lives in Vegas because I've been asking you for your prayers. And you guys have been fantastic. You guys have been praying for him. I know you have. You guys are coming up to me and reminding me regularly, praying for your son. Some of you try to call him sometimes. Some of you try to text him sometimes. That son has been down there for over a year now. I've been on my knees and sometimes on my face for over a year now to see this kid break. And I'm all prayed out. It's easy to thank God to you. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, are you not hearing me? I know He is. I know God is hearing me. I want to see my, my prodigal boy you guys know this. They have kids. You want nothing more. You don't care if they are gas station attendants the rest of their life. Love Jesus with all your heart. That's it. And I know that I broke my kids, you know? Like, I, I, I know when I look back that there is some stuff I would change in a second. But I also know that the grace of God is far bigger than the stuff that I throw down and break. I know that my son Cody is far more precious to God than he is even to me. I don't know when my son is going to return. But I do know that God is working something. Romans 8.28 tells me that. I know he's working something. I know that he's doing something. I trust that God is building something there. I trust that God is working something. He is uh, constructing something according to His purpose. He knows me. He knows me and He hears me. It doesn't feel like it all the time, but God hears you. God knows you. He knows what you need. Forty-two generations passed between the promise of Jesus and when Jesus showed up. Twelve hundred years. But that entire time, God was working, constructing, bringing about the most beautiful thing that this world has ever seen. And you know what? It showed up at just the right time. The promise showed up at just the right time. There was not a better time, even though it took 1,200 years. 
Galatians 4, 4 through 5 tells us that. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Key phrase, fullness of time had come. Fullness of time. It was appointed, is what it means. The time was not arbitrary. It wasn't capricious. It was appointed. It was calculated. It was complete and it was right. It was the right time when Jesus showed up. You know, I, I, I do take great comfort in knowing that God doesn't just determine what needs to be done. He also determines when it needs to be done. We can trust that. We can believe that. What this means is that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. When God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. It doesn't matter how long it takes, no matter how long it takes. When God promises something, it cannot be stopped. It cannot be reversed. It cannot be undone. It cannot be changed because God is a promise keeper. And this genealogy shows us that. Significant point number two. No life is insignificant to God. Do you see that in this text? Look at the names on this list, right? How many of them do you not recognize? There are names here that I've never heard of before. There are names here that you don't read anything about anywhere else in the Bible other than here worked into this list, right? Like Perez. You guys know who that is? Me neither. No idea. We know nothing about him in the Bible. Nothing. Other than that he was a son of Judah. Was he big? Was he small? Was he nice? Was he mean? Was he a Ford guy? Was he a Chevy guy? Like we don't know. <laughs> Shieldteal. Zadok. There's names. Young couples looking for names for your next child. <laughs> what do we know about Zadok? We know he had a bad name. Right? We know that he probably got beat up in school. Like when a house was teepeed, it was Zadok's. You know? Shieldteal. Who knows who Shieldteal is? Who knows? Who cares? God does. God does. He cares enough that these guys are a link in the chain of the bloodline of the Messiah. In my estimation, that's, that's far from insignificant. I mean, think about what this genealogy is telling us, that every seemingly insignificant person, every little unknown life narrative and story is not only known to God, like it's precious to Him, you know? It is God's sovereign hand orchestrating every detail of these little people with these little lives together to a point of bringing about the incarnation of the Son. These lives are not insignificant to God. I am not a fan, and I know that you guys know this because I've talked about it before. I'm not a fan of Christianizing people that aren't Christians. 
And what I mean by that is I'm not, I'm not into making people live, think, act like a Christian when they're not one. This is called moralism, not salvation. Does it make it easier to live next to them? Yeah. But it's also extremely misleading, and we've been doing it in this country for a long time. Having said that, the truth is that the more we see the knowledge and reality of God pulled out of our homes and pulled out of our schools and pulled out of our public institutions and pulled out of our history and pulled out of our Christmas gatherings, suicide rates will rise. Divorce rates will rise. Crime rates will rise. The porn industry will rise. School shootings will rise. Every form of self-harm will rise. And it's because the reality and knowledge of God over us is ultimately where we as human beings get our significance, whether we believe in Him or not. Because we are all wired with a natural-born common understanding that to God, the life-giver, there is no life that's insignificant. This text shows us that there is no life that is insignificant to God. But what's just as interesting in this text as the names that we know nothing about are the names that we do. Which brings us to point number three. What Christ came to do is found in how He came. What Christ came to do is found in how He came. In other words, the Gospel is in the bloodline. It's in the bloodline. It's in the genealogy. Let's face it, if we're honest, when it comes to the names that we do recognize on this list, it's a pretty scandalous list. It ain't pretty. I mean, there's a lot of sinners populating this list. In fact, I would go out of limb and say that there's sinners only populating this list. It would be accurate for us in reference to Jesus to open, just like Matthew does with this genealogy, to say Jesus is the son of Abraham, or Jesus is the son of David, right? Or Jesus is the son of Mary. But it would be just as accurate, really, for us to say Jesus is the son of whoredom. Jesus is the son of liars. Jesus is the son of murderers and the son of manipulators and the son of adulterers. In reality, from this genealogy, Jesus is the son of all these things. It's a morally embarrassing list. I mean, apart from just the generational sins here, is the fact that Matthew's genealogy mentions women. I mean, that may not seem weird to you, but but believe me, it's really odd. Five women to be exact, four by name. These are not just women that he mentions. These are women with question marks over their heads, like big ones. See, in ancient Jewish culture, you simply do not include women in your genealogy. It's just men, men only. This is a culture that saw women as slightly higher than dogs. And what makes this so bizarre is that Matthew's gospel is exceptionally Jewish. 
It's extremely Jewish. And yet he does this. In fact, it's so Jewish that Matthew begins his genealogy with who? Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. If you turn over to Luke's gospel and you go into chapter 3, where Luke gives his genealogy of Jesus, where does he start? Adam, just man. Furthermore, each of these five women are completely questionable morally, ethically, and culturally. Tamar played the harlot and tricked Judah. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth wasn't even supposed to be allowed in the Jewish fold. She was an outsider. She was a Moabite. Uriah's wife had a name. What was it? She was an adulterous woman who was sexually exploited. And then there's Mary, the mother of Jesus. She could be considered an ordinary sinner, but the truth is that in Jewish circles would probably be considered the biggest question mark of every single one of them, considering that she became pregnant outside of marriage as a young girl. She looks extremely suspicious and shameful. Each of the women Matthew chooses to include here are blemishes, not trophies in a genealogy. And yet he chooses to include them in the direct bloodline of Christ. Why would he do that? To show us something. I believe the Holy Spirit led Matthew to form this list accordingly to show us the redemptive nature of Christ's coming. I mean, Jesus wasn't just born onto the end of this scandalous list, guys. He was born into it. He was conceived into it. He was conceived from it. This is Jesus' list. Jesus is actually owning this list. And this is where the wonder of it all lies. God could have picked and fashioned a bloodline void of the obvious mess, void of all the questions and shame and bad reputation, but he deliberately picked this one. God picked a genealogy, not that would have him avoid the scandal of sin, but that would have him assume it. Let me say that again. God picked a genealogy, not that would have him avoid the scandal of sin, but that would have him assume it. It is in this way we find the gospel and how he came. And here's what it tells us. Nobody is too far gone for God's redemptive plan. Nobody's story is too broken that God cannot come into it and finish writing it and redeem it. Nobody's past is so dark or so scandalous that God can't wash it clean with the blood of Christ. It means that the name at the end of the list is stronger, better, more powerful, more redemptive, more effectual than any of the names that precede it. The name and life that matters most is the last one listed here. The promised one. And it's the greatest because it revises the lives of the ones that preceded it. This is why Jesus came. How he came. 
In the incarnation, we have God uniting himself to sinful humanity. He's assembling to himself our DNA. He's assuming our corrupt state. He's assuming our dilemma. He's assuming our hurts and aches and pains and struggles and temptations. He's assuming our bad reputations. He's come to be made sin for us, though he's completely without it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He, the Father, made Him the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, the Son, we might become the righteousness of God. It's a beautiful verse. This is the tale that this genealogy tells. It is a gift of righteousness to everybody on that list. This is the sum total of what Christmas is. It's a gift exchange between us and Jesus. We gift Him with our sin. He gifts us with His righteousness. That's Christmas. He gave, He gave Him, we gave Him our sin and He gave us His righteousness. I don't know what you're gonna unwrap Wednesday morning, but it ain't gonna be that. You know what I'm saying? It ain't gonna be better than what God has given us in Christ Jesus. We cannot disconnect the story of a baby in a manger a couple thousand years ago from the man 33 years after that that would hang on a tree as a curse. It's what He came to do. Bearing the sins of the world. He came to gift the world with something they could not gift themselves with. It was way too expensive. It cost way too much. We could not buy it. I saw a cute quote yesterday. I just used the word cute, which sounds weird, but it was. It was cute. (laughs) It says, this naughty list thing is counterintuitive to the spirit of Christmas. Jesus was the gift from God to the naughty. Thought that's kind of good. And cute. The Christian cards and the cliches say he's the reason for the season, which is absolutely true. He is. But also in a very real sense, on the other side of it, we are the reason for the season. According to John 3.16. His love towards us is so great. We mean so much. We are so significant to him. Not because of anything enough in and of ourselves, but because He's made us that way. He's determined to find significance and value in us that He sent His Son to buy the place. He sent His Son to fix what we broke. I don't have to tell you that this is what Christmas is, but the truth is, when Wednesday morning comes, it is so easy with the the in-laws coming and the company that comes and the food that has to be cooked and the presents that have to be opened and everything that has to be attended to, that this is the last thing that we sit and enjoy. Please do. Please understand that you have a right relationship with God because of Christ. That's a crazy gift. It's a biggie. Right? Spend some time with that Wednesday. Right? This is a weird text, but we see in this weird text the gospel. We see that God is a promise keeper. We see that no life is insignificant to God. 
and I'm talking to you here today, there's a few of you that think that have bought the lie that your life just might be. Listen to what I'm saying. You mean so much to God, so much to God, that He strung His Son up for you. That's how much He loves you. And the Gospel is seen in the way that He came. He came amidst a sea, a pool, a cesspool of dirty sinners so that He could have us, so that He could write us, so that He could restore us and redeem us. So Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. God, thank You for um, who You are and what You've done. Help us to actually uh, worship You, God, during this Christmas season instead of ignore You and lose You. Help us to enjoy and celebrate and laugh over and worship over and glory over the reality of Christ for us. To Your glory. Amen.